everyone. Uh, this is Austin here, and this is episode four of part two of our class, Can We Trust the Gospels? And the last few weeks, we've looked over uh, some evidence for the trial and death of Jesus. We looked at evidence for the resurrection. Justice, Justin took us uh, deep into some of the discrepancies or apparent discrepancies uh, across the different gospel accounts of the, the resurrection. And today we're going to be shifting gears a little bit. So we've been focusing more in on historiography and looking at the evidence of the texts and the uh, historical context. Uh, today we're going to be looking at the, some of the theology of the resurrection and starting to ask some of those why questions. Why does this matter that, that Jesus has risen from the dead? What does it mean for our lives? What does it mean for us today, 2,000 years later? Um, and so today, Elaine is going to be leading us through that. Take it away. All right, thanks. Um, so yeah, a few weeks ago, I spent some time asking God to show me um, where I should be focusing my energy for the foreseeable future. Um, and basically, I was praying and weighing my passions and my gifts, trying to discern what my ministry focus ought to be, if you want to call it that. Um, and I wanted to have a few clear statements to return to, kind of like a mission statement for my life. Um, and this is what I wrote in my journal. Um, I broke this down into three sections. There's what I call my kingdom ambition, which is kind of like what I want to have accomplished when I look back on my life um, in a few years. Um, and then there's a resolution that's more of a short-term focus. And then there's a discipline or practice that will help me grow into that, into my ambition. So I'll just read these for you. The first one is the kingdom ambition. So that's like the longer term one. Um, and I wrote, to nurture within myself and my community a fearless, joyful hope in our secure inheritance and our citizenship in God's eternal victorious kingdom. Um, and then the resolution is to invest in God's eternal kingdom by cultivating a posture of encouragement toward others, exhorting all to set their hope fully on God's eternal promises. And then the practice or discipline is to cultivate these habits of mind and heart by the power of the Holy Spirit through scripture, meditation, prayer, and contemplation. And um, I'm a big fan of what I call the stillness disciplines. Um, I just said that I want to cultivate this fearless, joyful hope in God's eternal promises, in myself anyway, through practices like meditation, prayer, and contemplation. Um, and it's so easy these days to avoid being alone with ourselves in quiet ways. Um, we can be infinitely distracted by busyness and technology, even by reading and studying and things. Um, but it is possible to pursue quiet even in our busy, noisy lives. Um, you can make time to be alone with yourself and with God. And I personally, personally believe that the deepest changes in my heart have been through those still times um, when I'm quietly observing my own heart, my thoughts and emotions and beliefs, and holding them up to scripture and praying for wisdom and transformation. And I really think stillness is essential if we want to cultivate habits of mind that are faithful and trusting toward God. Um, so I share this because I think it shows where I'm coming from as we be begin this episode. Um, I've been kind of fixated on God's eternal promises for a decade or so. And as I've spent more and more time studying and meditating on the hope we have in Christ, I've wanted to share my excitement as much as I can. So when I was asked to contribute to this podcast, I didn't hesitate for a second to jump on board. Um, so now I'm not an academic, so the flavor of what I'm going to be presenting today is going to be different from what you've heard in episodes one through three. Um, but even though I haven't read as many books as my friends here, I have read the Bible a lot. And I've thought a lot about God's promises and the examples set by biblical characters. So hopefully some of what I'm going to share will encourage listeners to dive into the scriptures on their own and really dig into these concepts, meditating on them prayerfully and setting their hearts on them. 
Um, and actually, it might be good to mention here that a few years ago, I assembled an eight-week Bible study booklet that I designed um, to guide people through Bible passages that deal with the resurrection and with our eternal hope. Um, and I'll be talking about a lot of the things that are in that booklet in today's episode and also in episode eight. And also, if, if people are interested in learning more, um, keep an eye out. We might be actually leading that study sometime nice. in the future. Um, and if you don't want to wait, get in touch with Mercy House and they can put you in touch with me. And I'm, I would love to go through that study anytime with any pretty much anybody. <laughs> um, so um, today we're going to cover some pretty mysterious theological concepts. So each one of these you could really spend like an entire semester of seminary studying. Um, and I'm probably not the best person to be bringing these up. Um, so I just want to point out that it's not my goal to teach or tell people what they ought to be believing about these deeply mysterious things. Um, but to encourage you all to ponder and pray and study and meditate on your own. Um, and just remember a few minutes ago, I said my ambition was to nurture a fearless, joyful hope in our inheritance and in our citizenship in God's eternal kingdom. And that's what I'm trying to work toward in this episode. So one of my favorite books in the universe is called um, Saints Everlasting Rest. It was written by a guy named Richard Baxter, who was a Puritan pastor in the 1600s. Um, my understanding is that Baxter, when he was a young man, he got really sick for a while and he thought he was going to die. Um, and while he lay in what he thought was his deathbed, he spent a lot of time thinking about the glories of heaven and eternal rest with God. Hmm. Um, and when he ultimately recovered from that illness, he found that he'd had such comfort and joy from his meditations on heaven that he resolved to spend time every day meditating on the joys to come. And I'm going to read a short excerpt from his book. Um, I've updated the English because the old style English has a lot of hasts and thous that <laughs> I will probably st stumble over. Um, so this is a, um, Richard Baxter exhorting his readers to spend some time every day meditating on the glories of heaven. And he says, If you would have light and heat, why are you no more in the sunshine? For want of this recourse to heaven, your soul is as a lamp not lighted, and your duties as a sacrifice without fire. Fetch one coal daily from this altar and see if your offering will not burn. Light your lamp at this flame and feed it daily with oil from hence and see if it will not gloriously shine. Keep close to this reviving fire and see if your affections will not be warm. Um, so it's, and it's clear from scripture that Baxter is not exaggerating with these um, beautiful sayings. Um, um, we see a bunch of commands in the New Testament that tell us to set our minds and hearts on eternal or heavenly things instead of on earthly things. You know, in Colossians, it says, um, you have been raised with Christ, so set your minds, your, your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. And 1 Peter tells us to set our hope fully on the grace to be given us when Jesus Christ is revealed. And 2 Corinthians says, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Um, we also see uh, the examples of the apostles in the book of Acts, who lived these astounding lives of faith and obedience, enduring all manner of persecution. Um, and these were the very apostles who wrote those lines that tell us to set our minds on things above. And we see that their focus on eternal hope was at least part of what drove that passion for the gospel. Um, so what exactly do we mean when we talk about this hope? So in my mind, we, the hope we are called to set our minds on is twofold. So on one hand, we have the hope for our eternal life with God. So one day Jesus will return. He'll bring all things under his control. He'll set everything right and establish a new order. And then we will rise from the dead and 
um, live in with him in peace, intimacy, and joy, and it will be perfect and awesome. And so that's um, one side of the, the twofold hope. On the other hand, uh, we have hope for the present time, and that hope is based on the fact that our victorious King Jesus is currently reigning from heaven. And that means we can trust that he is working in us and for us and through us even now. So in episode eight, we'll talk about the eternal aspects of our hope. So that's our hope for eternal life and what that might be like. Um, But today we're going to talk about our hope for the present time. And it's a lot. Um, Kind of the big three most mysterious concepts in Christianity. So we've got Christ's resurrection, his ascension, and the second coming, and then why they matter to us in real life. So first of all, what does Christ's resurrection mean? Why does it matter that he rose from the dead after dying on the cross? Um, So the first thing that matters about Christ's resurrection is that it actually happened. It is an actual historical event. Um, We spent the last three episodes looking into the proofs of the resurrection as a historical fact, so I'm not going to get into any more detail now. But I do want to challenge listeners to really think about this. Um, do you actually believe that this happened? And I'll admit that I have days where if you asked me that question point blank, I'd probably like flinch and hesitate and stumble through an answer or something. So um, keep in mind, this is a crazy idea and we really need to come to terms with whether or not it's something that we accept. Um, so the second thing that matters about Christ's resurrection is that his, his resurrection inaugurates his reign. So 1 Corinthians 15 says that Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And that verse implies that he's already reigning, even before his enemies are under his feet. And um, Ephesians 1.20 tells us that God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. So we see that he is reigning in the present age. Um, And Jesus reigns because he defeated death by rising from the dead. Um, The Bible tells us that sin and death reigned from the time of the fall in Genesis. But by rising from the dead, Jesus defeated death, and therefore he also defeated sin. And by that one decisive victory, he established himself as Lord of all. Now, this means that we can trust that our Lord is working in the world, in the church, and in us as believers Um, And he's accomplishing his purposes in the short term as well as in the long term. One of the things to uh, just thinking about highlighting this here and just the significance of Jesus, um, not just coming back from the dead. You mentioned this kind of inaugural inaugural aspect of it, like, like something is being initiated, it's being started. And that within Jewish thought and Jewish theology, resurrection, bodily resurrection was specifically an eschatological concept, right? Like last, that just being last things for them, resurrection meant the beginning of the age to come, right? Like that's what they're looking forward to. It's less of this sort of heaven, other world concept, but like there's going to be an age to come. And in that age to come, we're going to have resurrected bodies. Mm -hmm. So what it means for the disciples to claim resurrection is to claim that the the last days, the, the sort of age to come, is in some way here now. That hmm. um, in some way Jesus is already ushering in this this last days, this last thing. Um, so that inauguration you were talking about, why, why that's different uh, than just oh he came back from the dead, like that that this is um, the significance of that for for Jewish his Jewish disciples was this bringing in this this final thing. Hmm. 
Right, so I have a question. Um, so you're saying, I feel like I've been playing devil's advocate the last <laughs> <laughs> a couple episodes. At Patrick least, is the devil. Clearly, I'm the bad guy here. Anyways, so Some good cop, bad you're, cop. you're saying that uh, Jesus is here reigning now. And if I was, say, if I was a little skeptical about that, I might say, well, if Jesus is this really great guy, he's perfectly good, and he's God, so he's all-powerful, you might expect that things would be a little bit better than they are. Uh, people are still suffering. There's still, we've got a measles outbreak in the Pacific Northwest right now, for Pete's sake. There, I mean, there are a lot worse things going yeah. on in the world even than that. So, what's the deal? Like, if yeah. Jesus is reigning, why, why isn't everything better already? Right. It's a good question. <laughs> you know, I, I honestly don't know how to answer that. Um, I have thought about it a lot. Um, first of all, it's clear that the Bible does not promise ease and comfort on this side of Christ's return. So it's not as if the Bible leads us to believe that there should be no suffering or injustice in the world. Mm-hmm. And as I read the New Testament, I see lots of examples of Christ's power at work in the world. You know, he's bringing his kingdom to us in sometimes modest ways. Um, we see healings and miracles in the book of Acts. We see conversions, acts of mercy, compassion. Um, I think it might be helpful to view the church, like all believers scattered throughout the world, as outposts, outposts of the kingdom. Um, N.T. Wright uses that term calls us kingdom outposts. Um, So we're part of the means by which Jesus brings his kingdom and his work of recreation into the world. And it's also important to realize that we currently live in a time between the time that Jesus won his decisive victory over sin and death and the time when that full victory will be brought to its fullness. Um, I don't know why God chose to let such a long time elapse between Christ's resurrection and his return, but he has. And as Peter says, God is not slow in keeping his promise. Uh, some understand slowness. Um, so yeah, I don't have a good answer for why there's so much injustice and suffering in the world, even after Christ's victory over sin and death. But God is doing something awesome. Um, there's actually a verse in Ephesians. It's not exactly about this question, I don't think, but um, he says that in unfolding his revelation as he has, his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purposes, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus. Um, So that seems to suggest that God is accomplishing his very wise purposes through his people in this time between his resurrection and his return. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, I said earlier that my goal is to develop a fearless and joyful hope in God's eternal promises. And having a fearless, joyful hope doesn't mean that you'll never face hardship. It means that when suffering comes, you can look calamity in the face and say, you can't steal my joy. You know, I have better and lasting possessions. I have an eternal inheritance. I'm a child of God, a citizen of God's kingdom. And that's for now, as well as for eternity. So, um, you know, Peter commends his readers in 1 Peter for rejoicing in their inheritance, inheritance and salvation, even though now for a little while they've had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. And I guess my point is that this hope doesn't preclude us from suffering. It doesn't mean that suffering won't hurt. Like, we're so joyful that... Um, we don't feel pain. Um, it equips us to suffer well, um, to suffer with unshakable joy. Um, and that requires a much bigger perspective of how our lives fit into the big picture of God's eternal plan. We need to treasure God's promises. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So that's why it's so important for us to marinate our minds in God's promises 
to really set our minds and hearts on eternal things and to treasure them. You know, if our hearts are in heaven, nothing that shakes the earth can shake our joy. So that's kind of what I mean, I guess, by fearless, joyful hope. I was just thinking of a slightly backtracking, but thinking of um, how the, the, that rain is sort of coming about in this kind of almost like a slow way. And N.T. Wright uses, I think at least one of his talks, he uses the example of the Roman emperor sort of winning victory, declaring himself emperor, but then that taking years to actually sort of get around to all of the, uh, all of the provinces of Rome. And he sort of has to do his, his sweeping tour of, of the empire to get everything in order, make sure everyone is, knows that he's the emperor now before he actually gets back to Rome where he can then rule over this now unified emperor empire. And I think maybe a more uh, recent, slightly more recent example of this is something like Juneteenth. Right, so this is when the news of the Civil War and emancipation, Civil War being over and emancipation getting to Texas. Uh, and I think it took, what, two years or something like that? I'm not super, uh, I don't know the details really well. But basically the Civil War ends and there's emancipation proclamation. Slavery is now illegal or no longer legal. Um, but it took several years for that to actually get to places in Texas and other parts of the country. So there are people still living in slavery, living in bondage, still experiencing the effects of pre-war and war conditions, even though the war has been over for several years and this sort of victory has happened. Um, but it has taken time for that to kind of spread out. So that, um, he kind of uses, that's more a more contemporary analogy of the anti-rights example of the empire. Anyway, so sort of in a sense, the victory's won, but it, the, the repercussions or the effects of that are kind of slowly being realized. That, that reminds me kind of what you said, Elaine, about uh, recreation, like how God is using us to sort of recreate as he recreates us. Uh, so you can, you can see the sort of spread of the realm as a kind of recreation of the realm as each person in the realm is redeemed and recreated or something like that. Yeah. And I mean, for each Christian who's listening, you, you know you've experienced God recreating you individually. Mm -hmm. Like you, you're, you were redeemed and now you're being uh, transformed by the renewing work of the Holy Spirit. So you're experiencing that uh, inaugurated eschatology that it's already true that you're part of the kingdom but you're kind of experiencing it happening over time but you get to be a part of it for everything else too mm -hmm. yeah. so um, the third thing that matters about Christ's resurrection is that his resurrection sets the stage for ours um, in 1 Corinthians 15 and in Romans 5 we see this contrast between Adam and Christ um, we see that sin entered the world through Adam and death entered the world through sin and Jesus comes along and he defeats both sin and death. So eternal life comes into the picture through Jesus. Um, and because of Adam, spiritual death entered the world. Because of Christ, spiritual life is possible. Um, and we also see this phrase where Jesus is called the first fruits or the firstborn among many brothers. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 says, um, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn. Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. So the general resurrection, which is our resurrection, 
um, can only follow Christ. If he hadn't risen from the dead, neither would we. And I actually came across a passage in Micah 2 a few weeks ago that I think illustrates this really beautifully. Um, It says in verses 12 through 13, I will gather all of you, O Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I'll bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. One who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them, the Lord at their head. And I just love that imagery of our shepherd king breaking the way open for us um, to go out into pasture with his with him at our head. It's just a neat way to visualize what it means um, that Christ's resurrection makes the way for ours. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so the fourth thing that matters about Christ's resurrection, which really maybe ought to have been the first thing in the list, but uh, it kind of makes sense to say it last, is that his resurrection is the foundation of our faith. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And then a sentence or two later, he says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Um, Now, I suppose you could argue that for atonement, all that was needed was a perfect sacrifice and that Jesus was that. Uh, But without the resurrection, his victory is incomplete. Um, Without his resurrection, there would have been no victory over death. Uh, He would have been defeated by the cross, in fact. So we see that in a way, our faith really stands or falls on this one historical event. Now, of course, it can't be separated from all the other pieces, but without the resurrection, we have no savior. We have no victory. There's no eternal life, no power. We have no reigning king. Um, So our faith would be futile and we still would be hopelessly mired in our sin. And that's part of why it's so important for every believer to really consider these things deeply. You know, Christ's resurrection isn't optional. It's not an add-on. It's central to our faith. So the second deeply mysterious theological concept I'm going to cover today is Christ's ascension. Um, So after Jesus rose from the dead, he stuck around on earth for 40 days or so, appearing to people in various places and giving instructions. Then he ascended into heaven. And here's how it's described in Acts 1. So he gives his disciples some parting words of encouragement, telling them that they will be his witnesses throughout the world. And in Acts 1.9, it says, Uh, And this is from the 1984 NIV. It says, um, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Um, So there's this totally debatable side note I'd like to mention here about the relationship between heaven and earth. And you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, since I can't read ancient Greek. But um, so my understanding is that the word that's translated as sky in some translations is kind of interchangeable with the word for heavens. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's possible that when Jesus ascended into heaven, he kind of just disappeared from their view, from the view of the disciples, um, without necessarily taking like a vertical trajectory. So the disciples weren't necessarily looking up into the sky. They might have just been like staring into blank space in front of them um, after Jesus went away. And N.T. Wright actually makes an argument that the people of this time wouldn't necessarily have interpreted the word up as vertically up. They might have thought of it more like when you say you move up a grade in school. Like it doesn't necessarily mean that you move to the floor above your second grade classroom. It implies more of an upward movement in status or something. 
And so the reason that that, this might matter is that it means heaven might be a realm that is quite close to us in space. Um, There's this, uh, you know, there might be this heavenly realm that is hidden from our view, but it's close by. And um, there's a relationship between heaven and earth that we can't see unless we're given eyes to see. Um, So, for example, there are a lot of appearances of angels in the Old Testament that indicate that what's happening in heaven is affecting events on earth, like in Daniel, um, where angels seem to be involved in geopolitical goings on. And you also have the examples of Jesus appearing to people after the ascension in ways that suggest he's nearby, um, not necessarily up in space somewhere. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk about that more in a few minutes. I wanted to ask a question about... um, so N.T. Wright's reading of the Ascension. So in verse 9, it says, After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. The cloud makes it sound like, literally, he rose up into the sky, because yeah. that's where clouds are. What does Wright say about that? Um, I don't believe I remember if he even I, covered it. I So I... I I heard him talk about this in a talk recently, and I, I think he suggests it could be like a fog appeared out of the yeah. ground. Like, I, I, I think I think what Wright is trying to do is sort of correct a continuation of ancient cosmology that we've retained. So I, I think he's trying to push back on us thinking about heaven in these kind of spatialized terms where heaven is somewhere up in the sky and hell is somewhere down below us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I think... I think he's right in trying to correct that. I think he might be wrong in reading that correction back into mm-hmm. the ancient world. Because um, it seems to be pretty fitting within ancient cosmology yeah, to have yeah. this spatialized understanding of, of everything. And they talk about yeah. Sheol being down below. Mm-hmm. They talk about heaven being somewhere up above. And and the kind of idea of the, the sky or heavens being this almost like a, a dome uh, that you could sort of get out of the dome. God is somewhere up out of that. Um, so I, th- I think that what's important to his point, though, is that heaven doesn't have to be a place very far away uh, up in, like, outer space. And so you can still read, and he was taken up, like maybe he went upwards, and a, and a cloud took him out of their sight, so he got up as, as high as some, like, low-flying cloud, perhaps, and then gone. Mm-hmm. And they're gazing up into heaven, that is, up into the sky, like Elaine was pointing out. Uh, these are interchangeable, like, as we would use the terms, the, ter- the term in the Greek is just uranos. Yeah. And so they're just looking upward, at the sky, and then an angel comes by and says, "Hey, how come you're looking up there? Yeah. <laughs> Jesus is gone. He's been <laughs> taken to heaven." And so you can still read uh, Wright's point into that to say, "Yeah, it's not that he just kept going up and up and up and up and up. It's that he he was taken up and then taken away into, into heaven." Yeah. No, I and I I think Wright's <clears throat> point is is right. Uh, and I think there are other places to read that from scripture. Like yeah. what we see in the Holy of Holies in the temple is like that, that is heaven. Like if, if, you know, like God is, if heaven is sort of God's dwelling place in a sense, then what we're seeing in these different theophany experiences is like heaven 
in, interpenetration and inter, interpenetrating earth. Mm-hmm. So you have this much, much more mixed together cosmology. Um, I'd say, I don't know if we should read that into what the apostles are experiencing. They might really be seeing Jesus as sort of going up to heaven, mm-hmm. but I think right, right is right. And that we shouldn't think about heaven in that way. Yeah. It's but, definitely not. And it's a common idea in Christian history. I mean, uh, if you look at different liturgical traditions, like the Eastern Orthodox think that uh, when they're in their church services on a Sunday morning, it's like basically heaven coming to earth right there in the church every Sunday morning. Uh, that's the way they're conceptualizing what's going on. Uh, and that it's something that we might gain from thinking about heaven as not this distant place, but this place that yeah. is really nearby. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think part of the reason I'm bringing this up is um, so that we don't think we know. <laughs> like, like, don't assume that you understand the relationships here. That, mm-hmm. Like, there are a few different ways that we can think of it, and probably none of them are 100% right. Um, these are very mysterious topics. Um, so another reason that it, this stuff might matter, um, at least to my mind, is that it suggests that heaven might be uh, be a physical place, um, and that the beings who live there seem to be physical living beings. Uh, which brings us to another interesting point, which is that when Jesus ascended, he ascended in physical form. So Jesus currently lives in heaven in bodily glorified form. And I remember this just threw me for a loop the first time I thought about it, that our Savior is currently alive and physically alive, but we just can't see him Um, because he's in this heavenly realm that's currently hidden from us. And that is important because it means Christ is available to us anytime and anywhere Um, because of this strange relationship between heaven and earth and because he is our powerful and reigning Lord. um, He is actively at work in the world in power. So, you know, he hears our prayers, he intercedes for us. All these things that we say are true of Christ are true of a living, glorified Jesus who is now alive in heaven. And we talked earlier about how his resurrection inaugurates his reign. And this point about the ascension shows that he can, in fact, reign in the current era, even though he's currently not on earth. Um, So he reigns from heaven. And Patrick, this actually uh, might help to answer the question from earlier as well. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's good to realize that he's not just reigning, he's providing support to his people and empowering us in ways that really bless us. There's a famous quote from Hudson Taylor, he was an early missionary to China, you know, he Mm -hmm. suffered a lot in his missionary career, but ultimately he said, I never made a sacrifice because he felt that the blessing of seeing Christ at work in and through him had greater value than anything he'd lost in the process. And then there's another side worth worth mentioning here, um, and that's that we probably should make a distinction between the work of the Holy Spirit and the work of the ascended Jesus. Um, We just spoke about Jesus as being available and actively at work in the world. Um, But we also often speak of the Holy Spirit as being actively at work among us. Um, And I don't pretend to understand the Trinity, but I do think it's important to point out that the Holy Spirit is described as our counselor and our comforter. Jesus is our savior and king. So there's a distinction to be made there, even if it's like way over my head. And I I did want to talk about um, some post-ascension encounters the apostles had with Jesus. Um, So there was this time between the resurrection and the ascension, 
when Jesus was appearing to people, but at that time he hadn't ascended yet and he hadn't been glorified. Um, but after he went up into heaven, he also appeared to a few people in ways that I think are at least interesting to ponder because, because of the impact that they had on the apostles' lives. Um, so the first thing is he shows up at the stoning of Stephen in Acts 7. And so here you have Stephen, you know, he's sticking it to the man um, <laughs> with his, he's got this long sermon to the religious leaders where he's basically telling them they've never understood their own religion. It's a great sermon. <laughs> and, and he's also preaching the gospel to them. So, um, uh, And when they start stoning him, Stephen sees heaven open up and he sees Jesus. And that's, this is part of why I think it's important to think of heaven as being kind of closer by. Like, how far up in heaven are they? So here's how it's written in Acts 7, um, starting at verse 55. It says, But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to, he- to heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, looking, look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. You know, so here we have Stephen, he's facing this burst of rageful persecution. But when he sees Jesus, he's clearly filled with this powerful surge of courage to face what's coming. And he faces it with really beautiful humility, even forgiving the people as they're attacking him. Um, and it's important to remember that he's seeing not just Jesus, not just the resurrected Jesus, but he's seeing the ascended and glorified Jesus. I think that's pretty significant. Um, and then another example that I think is pretty mind-blowing is when Saul encounters the risen Jesus. So we know Saul was persecuting the church. In fact, he's even named in the passage we just read. Um, he's giving his approval to Stephen stoning by watching the coats of the guys who are doing the stoning. And he was on his way to Damascus to do more persecuting when Jesus showed up. And what I think is crazy here is that Saul wasn't just a non-believer at this point. He was an active enemy of Christ. Um, and so here's what happens in Acts 9. It says, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand to Damascus, and for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. We don't know if Saul saw anything besides a light in this uh, example, but even if that is all he saw, it says it was a light from heaven. So I imagine it was a pretty glorious and mind-blowing light. Um, And we know he went blind, and we know that the guys around him were speechless and afraid. So something big was experienced on the earth side of this event. Um, and we also see that Saul, enemy of Christ, heard the voice of the ascended and glorified Christ. So he had this encountered encounter with the glorious God of the universe. And then what happens? We, well, we know that um, Saul went on to become the Apostle Paul, who lived this crazy life of obedience and fruitful ministry. And he suffered a lot of persecution, even um, being stoned and left for dead at one point, um, only to get up and head to the next city to preach the gospel. Yeah, and it seems like um, 
it seems like what happens to Saul slash Paul is that he's got this zeal that just sort of shifts its focus, right? He doesn't, you know, lose any of his enthusiasm or gain new enthusiasm. It just shifts from this goal of like persecuting Christians on behalf of God, or so he thinks, to defending Christianity um, on behalf of God. Uh, so it's, you know, you can see that his personality is the same before and after his conversion. It's just now, you know, aimed at a different it's the Project. it's the agency that shifts from like kill all the Christians to convert everybody to Christians. <laughs> yeah, um, and I think I should point out that we don't need to have heavenly visions to live lives of devoted faith. Um, oh, good. <laughs> I don't have any. <laughs> Still waiting on that one. <laughs> Um, so, you know, I'm giving these examples of endurance and devotion after visions of the ascended Jesus, but I, I don't want to give the impression that you can only have that kind of faith if you have some kind of mystical experience, you know. Um, I'm sure mystical experiences don't hurt in developing zeal, but I also don't think that, um, I also do think that God can grant this kind of zeal through more modest means. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think the quiet disciplines of meditation and contemplation are so important. You know, for most of us, it's probably in stillness that he'll give us the inspiration we need to increase our zeal. You know, also in other forms of obedience, um, simply walking with Christ, um, seeing him at work in our lives, being watchful, prayerful. When Paul even talks about that, right? Like in Romans 12, he talks about the renewing of one's mind. Mm-hmm. And that seems much more like a daily discipline than a, yeah. than a road to Damascus kind right, of right. thing. And we talked earlier about how because Christ is alive in heaven and reigning from there, he's actively at work on earth. And that that's largely through the church. And that matters in part because um, it means that we are ambassadors of his kingdom here. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned before that N.T. Wright calls us kingdom outposts. So God has already begun his work of recreation in the world. And he's working even now through his people as Jesus reigns from heaven. Um, God's people are to bring a sort of intermediate hope to the current world, which is wounded and hurting, as we know. And we do that in all kinds of ways through acts of kindness and compassion, constructive and creative work, working in systems and with individuals, you know, through vocations and avocations. Um, And I can't even begin to list all the ways that we can serve our world as ambassadors of Christ's kingdom. Um, It doesn't all have to be overtly spiritual even. We're just serving the world as serving Christ. And also, this is something we don't talk about very much, um, but Part of being Christ's ambassadors in the world means that we have authority over spirits and authority to heal. Um, And this is one of the ways he empowers us to bring his kingdom to our world while we wait for his return. Um, In our culture, we tend to forget that there are spiritual forces trying to undermine the work of God. So we also forget that uh, that we have been given authority and power as Christ's ambassadors uh, to deal with those spiritual forces. And this is, of course, another deeply mysterious concept that should be studied with humility and prayer. So I'm not really going to get into it, but I do think it's worth mentioning. And perhaps most obviously, we are ambassadors of Christ's kingdom because we are empowered to spread the gospel. In Acts 1, um, just before he ascended into heaven, Jesus said that the disciples would receive power when the Holy Spirit came upon them and they would become his witnesses to the world. And that's a big role of the church even today. And that's something we talk about quite a bit at Mercy House. So I'll just leave it at that for now. And just briefly, I want to talk, touch on the second coming. We'll talk more about the eternal kingdom in episode eight. But for now, we should just cover some basics. Uh, 
So one day Christ will return and he'll bring his kingdom to its fullness. And we said before that at the resurrection, he inaugurated his reign. So when he returns, he'll bring that reign into its fullness. And there are a few places in the New Testament that speak of him destroying all his enemies, putting them under his feet, making him their, his footstool, making them his footstool, and so forth. So one day, all things will be under his control, and he'll establish a new order. Uh, Revelation 21 says, There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And that verse suggests that uh, he will have subdued all disorder in the world, including death and pain and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And he will have established his new order. And another thing that will happen at his second coming is that he'll redeem his people. So Hebrews 9.28 says um, that he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. And 1 Peter talks about the inheritance and salvation that are already ready now to be revealed in the last time. Um, So when he comes to reign, he'll also come to redeem his people. And that's why you see so many examples in the New Testament and in church history, for that matter, of people living lives totally sold out for Jesus. I'll read a passage from Hebrews 10 that illustrates this, starting at verse 32. It says, Remember those earlier days after you received the light, when you stood your ground in the great contest, in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. And I just really like that picture, you know, imagine joyfully accepting the confiscation of your property um, and other forms of persecution and suffering for that matter uh, because you have your mind and heart fully set on your current and future hope in this risen, ascended, and reigning Christ. Yeah, it's really convicting. I I think about how often we as Christians in America, anytime there's like the inkling of persecution against Christians, where we get very up in arms about our rights and you can't, you know, you can't persecute us. (laughs) And, uh, you know, it's, I don't want to say that it's wrong to fight for religious freedom or, Mm -hmm. you know, to like, to, stump for those things, but there's an obvious sense in which we're missing Paul's attitude and Peter's attitude and the attitude of the author of Hebrews that you just read right here, the attitude of joy in suffering that like, oh, you mean we get to suffer for the sake of the gospel, that we're considered worthy to suffer for the advancement of the gospel Mm -hmm. here in America? Wow. That would be so awesome. We don't get to just sit and be comfortable like the rest of all the other Americans. That w- seems like that would be the Pauline attitude and like everybody writing in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's, you don't tend to see that kind of attitude from, from us. Yeah. Uh, and so that's, that's convicting for me. Mm-hmm. This whole episode has been a long way of explaining why I want to exhort people to practice setting their minds on God's eternal promises. Mm-hmm. You know, as Baxter says, Baxter said at the beginning, um, fetch one coal daily from this altar and see if your offering will not burn. So I just want to exhort people to meditate on these promises often. It'll grow your faith. All right. Thanks again for joining us on the Mercy House University podcast. That's episode four of our class, Can We Trust the Gospels? Part two. And once again, if you have any questions 
If anything in this class is bringing up anything for you that you want us to talk about, feel free to email us at mercyhouseu at gmail.com. That's mercyhouse, the letter U, at gmail.com. And uh, I mentioned last time we're going to be having a training day during Holy Week at Mercy House. It's going to be on April 18th, and we're going to be talking about how you can present some of this information about the truth of the resurrection to people you know, and how you have those conversations, and how you can how it can impact your life here and now. So uh, we look forward to seeing some of you then. Thank you.